You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Okay, let's grab our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, would you please grab one of those in the seats in front of you? And you can find Mark chapter 12 on page 848. I had a little four-year-old friend who sent me a video via my wife asking me, Pastor Jeff, why do you always say let's dive into God's Word? And I had to scratch my head and think, why? Why do I say that? And what I came up with is that when we dive into a body of water, whether it be a pool or the ocean, we can't help but be changed. We dive in dry, but we come out wet and covered by the water. And so that analogy is what I hope happens every time that we open God's word, every time that we study God's word together, is that we study by diving into the text, coming out covered with the text, but more importantly, covered with the Christ of the text. And so I pray that will happen again this morning. So let's dive in. Mark chapter 12, let me begin reading in verse 1. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them, the religious leaders, in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them the, some of the fruit from the vineyard. And they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son, But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants, give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that what he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. But truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. I have to tell you, this is a challenging passage to study and understand, but then to preach. 
And so as I've processed this and wrestled with it, I, I think that what Jesus is doing is speaking to experts on the scripture, explaining to them in very clear terms what the gospel is. Explaining to them in very clear terms what the gospel expects. You can see in your notes the title of this sermon is seeing the gospel is personal. The gospel can be summarized as the story of good news. The story of the best news. And, and we love stories, don't we? In fact, if you were to Google the best-selling books of all times, the top five are actually stories. Number two, Don Quixote or Don Quixote. <laughs> story of a, a young Spanish man who had read so many romantic novels that either he lost his brain or he became obsessed with them and brought his sidekick Sancho to try to restore chivalry in Spain. Sold 500 million copies since the early 1600s. Number three is A Tale of Two Cities. I actually read The Tale of Two Cities, but it was unfortunately a, an abridged version from McDonald's in my Happy Meal. <laughs> so as best as I can remember, it's the story of a doctor who was in prison for 18, month, 18 years in the Bastille prison in Paris and then went to live in London, found his daughter that he never knew, and you know, blah, blah, blah. Two cities, London and Paris. The fourth bestseller is the Harry Potter, Sorcerer Stone, and I know there's a lot of controversy with that, so we'll just skip over to number five. It's Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. And that one is an amazing story that I have not read, but I've watched the movie. Each one of these are incredibly compelling stories. That's why they've had staying power. That's why they've sold hundreds of millions of copies. And yet, the number one bestseller of all time destroys these in the number of copies sold. This book that we're studying, or that you're holding on a screen in your hands, has sold over five billion copies. But just like these other four, it is an epic story. It is a story that addresses all of the important questions that humans can answer. It makes claims on our souls. It, it tells us with, with great detail how creation began and how it will end. It is an incredible, unparalleled story. In fact, people have tried to improve on this story by writing fictional accounts or, or portraying these stories in, in movies or TV shows, and no one has come close to be able to effectively tell the story like this book tells but what is expected of us from this story? Is it that we understand the story as the author intended? Is it that we share the story with others? Or is it that you and I engage and we personally respond? That's what Jesus puts on display. And you see the big idea in your notes. The gospel is a personal matter. It's a personal matter of understanding and submitting. So therein is the outline, two points, unlike the usual four. A lot to cover, but I pray that you will walk out of here having understood the gospel and having submitted. Number one, understand the gospel. 
That is what this story is about, is Jesus going to the experts on the story and making sure that they understand the story. And in fact, verse 12 tells us they do understand it. It's just the problem is their response. So so what is the story? Verse 1 says, he began to speak to them. And if you follow the flow of the text, the them are the religious leaders, They're in the temple, and Jesus begins to speak to them in a a description of a story called parables. Parables, one scholar says, were intended to reveal the truth to disciples and conceal it from the religious leaders. But in this particular parable, the, the religious leaders will understand the story. So let's unpack it, historically speaking, and then be able to walk through it like the religious leaders would have walked through it. It begins by a man who planted a vineyard. Do you see that in the text? And he goes to great pains to prepare the vineyard. He, he digs it out. He, he builds a wall. He, he builds the, 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 the trough for the wine press. He actually builds a watchtower. Now, that piece is important for us because we don't necessarily understand farming like they did back then. Farming today is either a family or uh, people that professionally live on land and farm it. That's, that's not what the ancient Middle East farmer did. The ancient Middle East farmer actually lived in the city with the rest of the villagers. And the reason for that was because outside of the village, outside of the city, was exceptionally dangerous. And so people lived with other people. But there would be land outside of the city that people would actually farm, and then they would go back home. Farm, and then go back home. There's tenants that are mentioned here. Do you see it in the text? What I always thought tenants were is like the individuals that I would drive past on my way to seminary in Los Angeles. There was this road called Balboa Road. And I would go by the Home Depot, and every morning, early in the morning, there would be a a, a numberless amount of Hispanics. And and what I learned from my grandfather is what they were doing is they were waiting for somebody to come by and slow down because that indicated to them that a job was to be had. And it was amazing to watch this. As a truck would slow down, they would just flock. It's because they desperately needed the job to be able to survive. That's not the tenants from the story. The tenants from this story are actually wealthy farm managers. These are people who would broker the the care of the land, and they were wealthy themselves. And so immediately, the religious leaders are starting to see, ooh, there's some potential for a parallel here. But it says that the master put tenants in in, in charge of the vineyard. And so far, so good. Everything is matching up as they would expect. He sends a servant when the harvest comes to be able to gather some of the crops. And so they're, they're following with Jesus. But now things start to turn. The tenants see the servant coming. They beat him and they send him away empty-handed. That's not usually how things went. It says the master sent another servant. Okay, well, surely he'll have a message different or he'll have a threat to the tenants that, hey, you know what? If you do that again, things are gonna get bad for you, but but there's nothing. It's just he does it again. And this one is beaten and then treated shamefully, so they're escalating things. And then it says, again, a servant was sent. And, and, And they actually kill this servant. So now by now, the religious leaders are thinking, okay, this isn't typically how things turn out. What's interesting is 
Verse 5 says that he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed him. And at this point, the religious leaders are saying, wait a minute. There's something going on here with this story. True, and verse 6 says he still had one other, a beloved son. And I think at this point, the religious leaders began to understand, I think we know who the son is. Because this phrase, beloved son, you can write down Mark 1.11. Jesus standing in the Jordan River, there was a voice from heaven. Do you remember that? This is my whom? Beloved son, the father said. And then the disciples on the mountain of transfiguration saw Jesus transfigured before them. And then the voice came from the cloud and the voice said, this is my beloved son. And then I think that these religious leaders who were experts on the scriptures probably thought beloved son, and you can write this down, Genesis 22 verse 1. When the Lord said to Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I, he said, take your son, your only son, your son whom you love, Isaac, and sacrifice him on the mountains of Moriah. And before you know it, I bet these religious leaders were starting to think, all right, we know who the son is. But look at the processing of these tenants in verse 7. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him. Look at this, and the inheritance will be ours. This is absurd. Who, who do you think, what master would give his vineyard to the son whom they killed, to the, the ones who killed him? Nobody. So the religious leaders at this point are beginning to realize, no, 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 this is not just a happy story. This is not just the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Rings. There is something to be learned from this. And you see in verse 12, they get it. I have to be honest with you, I don't enjoy reading. I shared with you that I've read Tale of Two Cities, but it was the Happy Meal version. When I went to seminary and after I've had to learn to be a reader, I've had to learn to be a quick reader. But as I was growing up, I only wanted the short version. I wanted the concise version. I've seen, I haven't read Lord of the Rings, I've seen it. I haven't seen the lion, or read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I've seen it. Like, I just want you to tell me what I need to know. But unfortunately, beloved, I think there's a lot of Christians out there who take that same approach to this book. I think we take the same approach to the good news of the story of the gospel. And we become experts on what other people say about it, not what we ourselves have studied. And I think what Jesus is doing is he's exposing these religious leaders because they've basically been reading the Bible, the Old Testament at this point, for the abridged version, making it mean what they wanted it to mean. And I think there's four barriers that we experience in our lives as modern readers of the gospel that keeps us from truly understanding it. I would encourage you to write these down. Barrier number one is the idolatry of the instant one of the reasons why we don't understand the gospel is because we want the abridged version. We want the, the Devo in the morning that only takes five minutes. In fact, how many people read devotions in the morning for the stories and the scripture references that are given? We never look up. I did that. We want the instant. Tell me what I need to know. Let me pop it in the microwave and have a steak in a minute. 
And this isn't new for us today. You can write down John chapter 10 and verse 24. Jesus for three years had been teaching the crowds. He had been teaching the religious leaders who he was. And he had done so through parables. He had done so through miracles. He had done so by explaining the Old Testament sermons on the mount. But the people in John 10, 24 are saying, tell us plainly, tell us instantly, are you the Christ? And Jesus is like, I've been telling you. But you're so focused on the instant, you haven't wrestled with it yourself. Number two, another barrier to our understanding the gospel in our modern age is the idolatry of presuppositions, pre-conclusions. We come to the text with conclusions already made, and oftentimes they are, they are influenced by preachers or by authors. And listen, friend, we will never come to Scripture without presuppositions. We will always have presuppositions. But we must not make an idolatry of it. Proverbs 18 is an amazing chapter for biblical counseling. In verse 17, it says that the first person to tell the story seems right until the second is examined. And if you've ever been caught in, in the middle of a debate or in the middle of controversy where two opposing sides are, are hurling grenades at each other and you're in the middle trying to arbitrate, when you hear the first story, that influences you, doesn't it? When you hear the first story and the person comes to you and they, they craft it in such a way where they're the hero or they bring tears or they bring passion, it is impossible to hear the second story and be completely objective, is it? And the same thing happens with Scripture. I, I hear people tell me what their positions are on different areas of theology, like the end times. And they'll say, I'm premillennial. Okay, tell me what that means. Well, John MacArthur says it. Or they'll say, I'm amillennial. And I'll say, well, well, tell me what that actually means. Well, R.C. Sproul believed it. And before you know it, we are so focused on our presuppositions because of godly men, because of wise teachers. But what we're doing is we're actually using their study and their wrestling as a crutch for us. Beloved, let's not come to Scripture with an idolatry of presupposition. Let's let the Scripture speak for itself. Let's wrestle with it ourselves. That's why I preach the way that I preach. Most weeks, I stand up and preach over a passage that I know I've probably spent more time that week studying it than you have. This is my job. This is my calling. But just because I've spent more time does not mean that I'm right. And you should listen to me because I'm pastor. But what it does mean is that in my wrestling, I'm trying to model to you how I got there and trying to equip you to be able to study it for yourself. This isn't new. You can write down Mark chapter 2, verse 24. When the Pharisees saw Jesus' disciples picking grain as they made their way to their town on the Sabbath, remember they were worked up, the religious leaders. How can your disciples do what is forbidden on Sabbath? But it was the traditions of man. They came to the law of Moses with their presuppositions that man had constructed and it kept them from seeing that Jesus is the Sabbath. The idolatry of presuppositions can keep us as well as any other generation from understanding the gospel. Number three, 
the idolatry of self. Don't trust yourself judging yourself. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. This is the Republican and, well, not the Republican, the publican. <laughs> Freudian slip. The publican and the sinner. The Pharisee and the publican. Man, I, just read it. But, but the, the, the Pharisee stood and prayed. Remember what he said? Thank you, God, that I am not like this man. What he was doing is he was looking at himself through the lenses of self, not the gospel. He was talking to God, not as God had defined himself, but as the Pharisee defined God, and he was unable to see himself accurately as a result. One one, one great book that I would commend to you is the book by Milton Vincent called A Gospel Primer. It's a short book with life-impacting truths. We must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Why? Because it will keep you from being prideful. It will keep you from seeing yourself in a way that God doesn't. It, It reminds us, the gospel reminds us that no one seeks after God on our own. There is no one here today who on their own will is seeking after God. Romans 3, 10 through 12 tells us that no one on our own can seek after God. If you're interested in God today, that's because God is working on your soul. That's humbling, isn't it? None of us could even repent. You know, the gospel says repent and believe. None of us can repent unless God has gifted us the ability to repent. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. Even faith, beloved, listen, no human being has a faith that God will accept unless it is gifted to them, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And so before you know it, as you're reflecting on the gospel, you're realizing, I brought nothing to this table of negotiation. In fact, it's not even a negotiation. It is God, all God. That's humbling. Dave Harvey, Lord willing, next week will be preaching I cannot wait for this. You gave me a little window onto what he's going to be preaching. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Friends, set your watch. Be here early. Make sure you get a seat. And what he's going to be focusing on without giving too much information is that when our desires are either delayed or denied by God, it is an opportunity for us to remember what we ultimately deserve, and that is Nothing. The gospel, beloved, invades self. But so oftentimes we define self the way we want to, the way that we are comfortable with it. And before you know it, the idolatry of self can keep us from understanding the true gospel. Number four, another barrier to our understanding of the gospel is the idolatry of familiarity. Maybe you've heard of the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. Those of us who have been saved for many years or have been around the church, we are in the dangerous ground of familiarity. If we are not careful, we can say we are all about Jesus and not tremble at that statement. If we are not careful, we view the word of God as something that ends up being our duty, that prayer is something we do before a meal. Before you know it, church becomes something that we just do on Sunday morning. Worship music that we sing on Sunday morning is more about whether we like it or whether our voice sounds good than it is about portraying what our hearts are overflowing with. 
that God sent his son for me, a sinner, a rebel to the cause of Christ. And that he graciously invaded my will and replaced a heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Man, if that doesn't make you excited, I don't know what will. The idolatry of familiarity is not new. John 8, 39. As Jesus was just pounding an awesome message, having just healed a man, the crowd's response is, we have Abraham as our father. They were so familiar with that Abrahamic relationship and the covenant that came through Abraham. But Jesus says, if Abraham was truly your father, you would obey my words. Familiarity can become an idol. Friends, let's not let that happen in our lives. See, these idols can be barriers for our understanding of the gospel. But look at what Jesus says in verse 10. He says, have you not read this scripture? Now listen, Jesus is not making a rhetorical statement. He doesn't wonder how, if they've read it. What, he, what he's asking is, you've read it, but do you understand? Of course these religious leaders had read the scriptures but he's asking them, it's not enough for you to read. You must understand. And so what scripture does he give them? Well, he quotes Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Oh, this is an amazing psalm. It's a psalm about a Davidic king. A Davidic king whom, just like Psalm 2, the nations had gathered to attack and the Davidic king is wrestling with, man, I, I'm, I'm struggling. I, I'm overwhelmed by the attack, and yet you have become my salvation, Lord. You are my salvation, Lord. You are my salvation, Lord. And he swells in a crescendo of excitement. And this psalm is describing how the Davidic king comes back to Jerusalem and enters the temple and gives thanks to God providing salvation. And that's when he says the stone that the builders rejected had become the chief cornerstone. The problem was, is these religious leaders would have heard stone, and they had gotten to a place where he thought that Jesus was talking about a building. In fact, let me give you some scriptures. Isaiah 28, 16. Zechariah 4, 4, uh, 10, 4, excuse me. And Isaiah 8, 14. All of these reference stones and cornerstones and there's evidence as we reread the writings of the prophets, as we read the rabbinic writings, as we even look at the Qumran writings, that we can see that the Jews of Jesus' day had had generations before them teach that the stone that Isaiah is talking about, the stone that Zechariah is talking about, the stone that the psalmist is talking about is not a piece of architecture. He's a person. In fact, would a... You turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 is unpacking salvation. He says in verse 3, if you indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, if you have tasted that the Lord of good is good, and you have grown up and you are saved then you should continue to grow by the milk of the word. And he's talking about the whole establishing of salvation and growing in salvation and growing in our ability to look like Christ and to be mature in the faith. 
Look at what he says in verse 4. As you have come to him, Jesus, a living stone. Isn't that interesting? And you can see that Peter's actually working through what I'm talking about here. These Old Testament passages that are talking about a stone. And he's, think, he's wanting the readers to understand this isn't about architecture. This is actually about a person. And he says, you've come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, pre- chosen and precious. He quotes in verse 6, for it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He quotes this Psalm 118 passage in verse 7, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse 8, it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This is, this is weaving together the Old and New Testaments. This, this, this best-selling book, beloved, has two parts to it, an Old Testament and a New Testament. And what Peter is doing magnificently here is he's weaving it together. I don't know about you, but there's been seasons in my life where I just wanted to stick to the New Testament. I'm reading through the Bible in a year, and I'm, I'm in Numbers this morning, and just read the chapters. There's, there's over 100 verses in Leviticus that talk about skin disease. And those are usually the sections that bog me down when I'm reading the Old Testament, until I've understood what Peter is talking about here. The old and the new weave together on one point and one point alone, and that is Christ. This is the beauty of it. And what Peter is, is, is doing here is he's saying, you remember those stone references in the Old Testament? Surely you do. Those stone references in the Old Testament are talking about a person. They're talking about the living stone, verse 4. It is Christ. And everything in the Old Testament was intending to point us to Christ. They were all shadows. Even the building, remember the building where the religious leaders and Jesus were standing, this magnificent temple, the place where God dwelt. He's he's pointing at it and he's saying this is a shadow pointing to the substance. And what Peter does in 1 Peter 2 is explain how we are then connected That if you have placed your faith in Christ and received forgiveness of your sins because of the completed work of Christ, look at verse 5. You yourselves are like living stones. And what is the objective of the living stone? It's not to be the centerpiece of the building. It's to be a holy priesthood, verse 5. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. This is the gospel. Now as we turn back to Mark chapter 12, remember who was telling Mark what to write. Peter. And I think what Peter is doing here through Mark is he's exposing, like Jesus was, the religious leaders, people who are depending on religion to save them. Here's a quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. Their conclusion was that this was all about a system of religion of a stone building when the truth is it is about the stone person. 
They had settled into a religion. They had settled into definitions of religion, ceremonies of religion, their own expectations, their their own definitions. And And I think most likely Jesus was using a play on words here. I love this. The Hebrew term for son is ben. The Hebrew term for stone is eben. And I think Jesus is tying Ben together with Eben to show that the stone is the son. Don't reject him. But see, the religious leaders were the builders. They were the ones who were the experts on buildings, the experts on religion. And they had taken a look at the Eben and said, this is not the Ben. In fact, let's get rid of the Ben. We are the experts. We reject him. And God says, no, 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 no. He is the epicenter. Friends, this is the gospel. Jesus taught it plainly. He demonstrated it by miracles. He did it through parables and stories. And the story of the gospel is that God is creator. He is king. And by his status, he has the right to establish the standards and the expectations. The expectations are perfection. And every human being falls short by their very nature. He doesn't even have to wait until we do something. By our very nature, we fall short. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot be accepted by the God of the universe. We desperately need something outside of ourselves. And that something is a someone. And it is Christ. And his life and his death and his resurrection and his place at the right hand of the Father right now makes him justified to be believed in, to be submitted to. Because after all, here's a quote for the screen, perfection, Jesus is the perfection of creation, the solution for its corruption, the tool for its reconciliation, and the hope for sinners. The Pharisees heard it plainly. The religious leaders heard it plainly. You're hearing it plainly, I pray. Do you understand it? The way you can tell is by number two, submit to the gospel. Submit to the gospel. Verse 13, 14, 15 contain words and terms that seem like they're responding to the gospel. There's phrases like, they sent to him, they were seeking, they perceived, that means they investigated. Verse 14, they even say to Jesus, we know that you are true and that you don't care about opinions and that you truly teach the way of God. All of these things were true. But, but, but the first clue that something is going on here that is not submission is verse 13. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. When two arch enemies unite to attack you, that means they must hate you something fierce. You see, the Pharisees were all about the Jewish religion. They were all about the law of Moses, all about protecting Israel. The Herodians were all about their political status and making sure that Rome was taken care of. These two were at odds on their own, and yet they're coming together to unite, and it's to unite against Christ, verse 13, to trap him in his talk. I enjoy officiating weddings. I've shared there's some things I don't enjoy. I don't enjoy wearing suits, but I do. I don't enjoy a ceremony that you can't 
You shouldn't make mistakes. That's the beautiful thing about preaching is you all are so gracious to me that when my tongue gets tied, it's not that big of a deal. But man, when you've got the video rolling and grandma's sitting down in the front row, (laughs) (laughs) but what I especially love about weddings is I get to preach the gospel. That's my non-negotiable. We can do sand things. You can even do bubbles, but I'm going to preach the gospel. Remember, I got done with a wedding charge, and we were all after the ceremony just getting things together, and one of the bridesmaids was reflecting on my sermon. She was very complimentary. She had no idea that I was listening in the other room. She said, that message was so good until the pastor got to the submit part. How dare he say a wife is supposed to submit to her husband? Unfortunately, her understanding of a biblical submission was not biblical. Let me give you a definition I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. Submit is the joyful willingness to lay aside the priority of me for the championing of you. That's biblical submission. It's the joyful laying aside of the priority of me to championing your needs, what you want, what your instructions are, what your desire is, what is best for you. That's what the gospel expects. That's what the gospel demands. And here we see the question that the religious leaders posed to Jesus, and they thought they had him trapped. They crafted their question to require a yes or no answer, or so they thought. And here's what was at stake. Remember that the religious leaders are afraid of the crowds, The crowds are for Jesus at this point. Just days before, they had been scattering robes and outer garments and waving palm branches, saying, Hosanna, you're the king. But they understood that if Jesus said in answer to their question that, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, the crowds would be switched. They hated the taxes. In fact, the word tax here is census or census. It's the tax that led Caesar Augustus in Luke 2 to take a census. It allowed the Romans to know how many people were there in their empire so they could start to calculate how much money could they take in in their taxes. And the Jews despised it. So if Jesus said, yes, you should pay taxes, then the Jewish crowd would likely be swayed. But then if he said no, The Herodians were there to say to the Roman soldiers, did did you hear what this guy said? He will not pay taxes to Caesar. Yes or no, Jesus, they knew he was trapped. Here's a quote up on the screen, friends. The yes or no expectations of man must defer to the wisdom of the word. There are times in our debates when it is appropriate to have yes or no questions. But anytime we establish that the answer must be yes or no, we must always be willing to defer to the wisdom of the word. And the word speaks. He asked the crowd to bring him a denarius. A denarius was a coin that represented one day worth of labor. And on that coin, archaeologists have found was a picture or a likeness of Caesar as well as inscriptions. Let me read to you the inscriptions 
on one side of this denarius. It said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, himself Augustus. This was a claim of divinity. This would have been sacrilege to the, to the Jews. Then on the back side of this coin, it said Pontifus Maximus, which, said, which means high priest. This was against the Jewish religion. Jesus says, whose likeness and whose inscription is this? They said, Caesar. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. You know, we live in a day where this response is controversial for us as Americans. Would you take out some currency if some of you carry currency? Just take it out right now. Would you do that exercise for me? Take out a coin or a paper bill and look at whose inscription and likeness is on there. There's probably a George Washington in the house, probably an Alexander Hamilton, maybe a Benji. But as you look at the inscriptions and the likeness, we don't see anything claiming deity. We don't see anything claiming high priest. In fact, most of our currency, if not all, says, in God we trust. I haven't carried currency for a while, so I don't know if the new ones don't say that. Surely the men and surely the system that they represent is not infallible. Please hear me when I say that. But it is an authority that God has established. And so what is Jesus saying to the religious leaders? What he's saying, here's a quote to put up on the screen, or maybe I didn't do this quote, but it's an important one. Part of submission to God is submitting to human authorities. Part of submitting to God is submitting to human authorities. Remember, submission is the joyful laying aside of the priority of me to champion you. It's not easy to do that in our present context of the United States government as a Christian. I acknowledge that. But how do we navigate through what Jesus said to these people who the leader claimed to be God, who in just a few years would actually target Christians to persecute them and actually execute them for their faith? How do we take what Jesus said to them and actually apply it to us? Well, I found something that I'm gonna ask the team to put up on the screen and walk through it very briefly with you that I would commend to all of us as seven pledges of Christians living in our government's control and authority. Number one, I will be a good citizen living in subjection to governmental authority, even a pagan one. And I will responsibly engage the political process. If allowed, I will vote, seeking to bring my Christian convictions to the public arena. That's a strong statement. Number two, I will live internationally like Joseph in Egypt, Daniel in Babylon, and Jesus himself on earth. But my ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus and to the kingdom of heaven. Aren't those great examples how did Joseph live? Joseph was not Christ. Daniel was not Christ. But there are patterns in their lives that point us to Christ, don't they? These are examples because they imitated Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. Beloved, that is discipleship. We are calling each other, imitate me so long as I imitate Christ. We are internationals, even as United States citizens. Number three. 
I will obey the state, but worship only God. And I will thank God for all the good he does through the government, praying always for all who are in authority. That last half I struggle with. Especially those in authority that are in stark and bold opposition to the truths of God's word. We're supposed to pray for them. We're not just praying for their decisions, but praying for their hearts. We are thanking God when the government aligns with what his purposes are, which brings us to number four. We acknowledge that all government authority has been established and comes from God, Romans 13. That's pretty awesome. And if we start with that understanding and start with that conviction, some of these harder points, harder personal applications become more about worship than they do about patriotism. Number five. I will acknowledge that all government serves in some measure the purposes of promoting good and punishing evil. Bad government is almost always better than no government. Just think about that. Imagine, if you will, even though we detest speed limit signs, or maybe I'm the only one, (laughs) we detest the color red when we are in a hurry to get somewhere. Sure better than not having any signs or lights, isn't it? Number six, I will pay all taxes levied upon me by my government, recognizing its right to do so. I know this gets into conscience territory, and you've got to work out your conscience according to Scripture. Don't let it be what some YouTuber says. Don't let it be what you heard on a podcast. Let it be what you studied from Scripture, but... Listen to your conscience. But friends, if Jesus asked taxes to be paid by his people to Caesar in Rome, come on. Number seven, I will engage in civil disobedience only when my government prohibits me from doing what the Bible commands or what it commands me to do what the Bible prohibits. And then the next phrase I forgot to put on there is, as a last resort. Friends, this, this, I didn't make this up. This comes from Exalting Jesus and Mark. It's a great commentary. You can email Nicole Neal. You're welcome, Nicole. <laughs> email her. I'll send her the PDF if you want to have this to be able to write it down. But friends, I think these are good starting points for us as Christians. I'm not saying this is the end-all, be-all. I'm not saying that there isn't some loophole or some exception that we can't somehow come up with. But I think these align with the gospel, and I think Jesus would say, yes. And friends, we live in a day where our submission to our government in this manner and with this heart is a great opportunity for us to give evidence that we have submitted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? The religious leaders, unfortunately, left it at marveling. It says they heard his answer and they simply marveled. There was no submission. In fact, as the verses will unpack, we see that they refused to submit to the gospel. They understood it. They were right there. But those idolatries that I mentioned kept them from submitting. So I want to ask you this. As you listen to the gospel unpacked, do you understand it? Do you understand the claims that this best-selling story of all time makes on your soul and mine? 
If you understand it, have you submitted to it? But listen, friends, it'll cost you everything. The gospel is not about partial in, partial out. It is all in. And there will be days when that is tempted, tested. It'll be days when we are tempted. But being all in on the gospel of Jesus Christ means that you have submitted and he will transform you to be able to fulfill what he has called you to do.